I don't need help. I'm not in an abusive relationship. This is just how it is for us. It's a lie we tell ourselves, one that many in abusive relationships repeat until they believe it. But there's hope. Welcome to I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship, a podcast about surviving domestic and sexual violence. This show is about hope. You will hear from survivors of abuse, and their stories may sound familiar. They may even inspire hope. Our goal is to connect with others in these toxic relationships to offer that hope, and with supporters of our mission, anyone willing to help get rid of abuse in our culture. We also talk with the experts in the field, from the officers on the front lines of domestic abuse calls to the therapists and advocates helping survivors navigate this complicated road of recovery. If you're in need of help, please visit our website or call our 24-7 hotline, 800-828-2023. And if this is an emergency and you need help immediately, please call 911. Welcome to I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship. The views expressed by guests on this podcast are not necessarily the views of domestic and sexual abuse services. Welcome back to I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship. My name is Dan. I'm your host today, and I am. Um, I'm, I feel very honored to welcome our guest today. Uh, this is about a survivor story. This is about some a survivor story that we aren't necessarily often having. Um, it's also a conversation with an author who is uh, telling his story. And I say his because, yes, this is a man who is a survivor, and his name is Silas cast silas welcome to the show thank you so much dan i really i really am uh, honored to be here it's, um i really appreciate you bringing me on so thank you yeah you're welcome so silas you have uh a fictional thriller based on true events uh let's start with the book itself we'll get into where all this came from i would imagine as we unpack this but um tell me about interrupted dreams if you would well, Interrupted Dreams, I mean, it really does follow this, the, the full story of how I got into um, the, the situation that we will talk about. And, um, you know, it, it starts with around the time that I met um, my ex-wife and it sort of navigates through the, you know, the full gambit of the, of the relationship from um, the first time we met, our, our first date, um, and, you know, up to getting married and then, you know, a few years of marriage and then um, culminating in, in, uh, um, in a pretty gruesome attack um, that, uh, you know, ended it, obviously. And so um, it is the full story of that. And, you know, it's kind of, I don't know, and you know, I think every relationship that ends up, you know, abusive is, is different in its own right. And so you know, with this story, I tried to portray how a male can find himself in a, in an abusive relationship without even the, the physical side of it being there yet. Right. So, you know, when I, when I think back on the situation I was in, a lot of the things that I dealt with, a lot of the things that I struggle with today have to do with things that happened before any physical attack happened, right? What I think makes my story different and able to tell is if I tell people everything that happened before the attack, they listen and they're like, yeah, that's pretty crazy stuff. When I tell people about the attack and then I go back to tell all the stuff, it, it frames it completely differently, 
there's a different ear when I talk about sort of the, the manipulation and some of the crazy things that she did prior to the attack, because the attack gives me sort of a, an avenue to say, this is not a, he said, she said, this is not me just um, kind of exaggerating some of the things she did. Um, it gives a different weight to the nonviolent side of abuse that occurred prior to it. Right. And the, um, and I, I actually don't go into it a lot in the book, but um, the divorce process and the court system um, and dealing with that as someone where she really used the court system against me as a male, right? And she accused me of a lot of things that she was doing, sort of a lot of projection, but it's a real difficult spot to, to navigate when you're a man. You want to be sensitive to people who are claiming that someone's abusive, right? And so, and that's kind of what she was doing. So it was really difficult to navigate. And that's a lot of what I struggle with, even more so than, um, than the attack on my life, right? So um, the attack on my life for me was one event. And it was almost, it's almost a good thing in a weird way, because it allowed me to parent my children and know them as they grew up, right? So this happened when my kids were four and a half and two. And at the time I was contemplating saying, you know what, I'm gonna have to give up a relationship with them until they're 18 and sort of roll the dice because it was, I was running out of money. I couldn't defend myself, everything. Um, and so this attacks really, it stopped all that. I mean, I was about to win custody. That's kind of why this, this attack happened, but um, in, in a good way, the attack allowed me to stay in my boy's life. In fact, I'm, you know, I've been raising them alone since they were two and four and that's, um, it gave me the opportunity to do that. Right. And now, and now I don't have to, you know, deal with the, the struggles of co-parenting with someone that, you know, was out to, out to get me and, and push me out of their lives. She, she wanted me to give up my parental rights. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what I was fighting for um, or fighting against. Um, but it was, you know, you, you, when you're in that situation, you cannot, <laughs> you, you can't deny that you don't go, you know, maybe, maybe I don't give up my rights, but maybe I just kind of step out of the situation. I say, you know what, you don't take, you know, I don't know, support and I won't ask for visitation and we'll just kind of go our separate ways. And then when the kids are 18, they'll be able to make up their mind. But the reality is from four to 18, that's a long time. And right. a child grows up believing his father just walked out of his life and, um, and would be abusive. You have no idea what they're going to think of you um, at the age of 18. You'd be rolling the dice, hoping that, you know, their mom's behavior would be self-evident, but you don't, you don't know. Right. I mean, yeah. so, yeah, yeah, so that's kind of what the book explores, but you know, I, it, it's, it's a mistake I made. And this, this is the first book I've ever written. Right. So I've, um, prior to this, I probably wouldn't have become, you know, an author, but um, I would probably, if I were to rewrite the book, I would start it at a different spot. I would start it closer to where we went through the divorce and I would explore a lot more of that, but I didn't. Um, but I do, but I did make it a trilogy while I was writing that book. So there are two more books for me to sort of 
explore some of the um, some of the other topics that I really want to kind of get into that I didn't necessarily get into in this book. So, so in that in that case, it'd be a trilogy of unpacking what wasn't covered, not necessarily a sequential yeah. trilogy. In, well, in in a way, I mean, the b- book one is this this first book was as close to nonfiction as I could get, but I I, I definitely take some some very clear license um, creatively and and fiction wise, and and you know and and uh, definitely put some twists in there that people who know my story would not expect. The, the trilogy was born really out of a character that um, was going to be like a line in the book, right? But then I kind of went down, you know, just one day I was sort of daydreaming and, Will, and William is this character. And Will, the, the second book is entirely fictional, um, but I explore sort of William's um, venture into, you know, his obsession with, with um my wife and, and you know he was he was born out of a character that she when we, when we when when I first met my ex-wife you know we she was dating another guy I, I don't know if she was dating him when we met but um we didn't we went a couple months without even seeing each other we would talk every night but we wouldn't see each other and I learned later that she was seeing a guy um and so I kind of had this this one character in the book and then I just I explored it um, further. And that's kind of where I'm developing book two and three, but I'm, I'm, I'm hopefully getting into what, what I'm looking to explore is more the manipulative side, um, of emotional abuse, right. Where it doesn't necessarily have to be physically violent for it to be abusive. So, yeah. So this, this William in the book, does he, uh, help the main character? Well, someone who like talks about his relationship with the woman and to show like a pattern of abuse, or is this someone who becomes an adversary? What does this look like? Well, um, William dated and Angie is the character in the book. He he dated her for a couple months. And um, as it turns out, he has a very, obsessive relationship with her to protect her right so in in the first book he is there um and he's you know sort of a key component of what happens but he's there to protect her right and he has some things in his past that sort of draw him into that um and so the the reality is and i don't want to give out too much but of course the, the uh he wants to protect Angie from who is my character, Justin, because he doesn't trust Justin for reasons we don't know yet in book one. Um, and so, you know, he's there, he's there to protect her. Um, and then, you know, book two, she's, you know, she's been arrested and she's in jail. So um, there's, there's a, there's still an obsession there and he's still trying to um, help her um mm. per se so mm. yeah sounds like an interesting uh thriller read psychological and everything um yeah. if we go back to your story silas when you said if i tell people 
all of the things that led up to the attack before the attack. It's a different viewpoint if I tell them the attack and then go back. How does so so let's I want to I want to explore that a little bit. If you tell someone <clears throat> about the attack, does that reframe it so they believe you more, or does that make no, them I just, think? No, I I I think <clears throat> so. The story prior to the attack, and let, let me step back. I mean, I had three months before this attack, <clears throat> I had a therapist finally convince me that she was not likely to physically attack me, right? Because I was convinced. In fact, two years prior to the attack, I wrote, I, you know, I was trying to write a blog. I mean, I was, I knew I was going to start running out of money. And I was like, you know, do I try to reach out to friends? And so I, I wrote something. And in it, I wrote, you know, she will be the death of me, not metaphorically. I, I really think she will try to kill me. Um, and this was in April of 2010. The attack happened in February of 2012. It was, you know, I think December of 2011, a couple months before the, the attack, where, I, you know, I was in a therapist's office and I was talking about it. And he said, you know, there's nothing in her past that says she is um, physically violent. And most people who are physically violent have shown some level. And she was at the time 20, you know, uh, 29 or so. <clears throat> and uh, so the likelihood of her being, you know, a physical attacker or, or violent, physically violent was unlikely because she hadn't shown, there was no reason to look at her past and say, you know, she, she shows a pattern and that's unlikely in most abusers. Um, so it was, you know, it was a couple months before the attack where I was kind of calming down going, okay, you're right. You know, there's probably not a likelihood that she'll do that. But at the same time we were going into court. And so, anyway, sorry, let me, oh, you know, kind of step back. So that, that's part of why, you know, why I say that, because even therapists at the time, there, there, there were some people that were very clued into how dangerous she was. My sister is a key, like is, is a key reason I even, um, you know, was able to escape some of the abuse charges because she had printed out every one of my ex-wife's blogs where she, you know, there was clear evidence that, you know, she was not um, telling the truth. And one other therapist that had done some therapy with the two of us, knew what he seemed to understand that she was, she was dangerous. Another therapist kicked me out of therapy because I was angry at being accused of things I hadn't done under, under oath in a court of law. Right. Um, parent, uh, you know, a parental supervisor that I'd hired to be there, um, a guardian ad litem. They were helpful, but it never felt like it was enough. Right. And anytime I tried to explain that this is more dangerous than anyone knows, everyone kind of shushed it. It's like, you know what? It's just, it's just a divorce. You two are going through divorce. It happens with everybody in divorce. And, um, you know, it's just a, he said, she said, and you guys are, you know, it's just a normal custody battle. This is not, this is not unnormal. And I mean, it clearly was, but it, it was very difficult to get any help. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, spent one afternoon trying to convince a, um, a domestic violence hotline that, you know, I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't know, but they couldn't do anything for me. Right. Because there was no immediate threat, 
which I mean, which is understandable, right? You've, you've got to take care of the, the immediate threat. But um, yeah, it was, it was just a very difficult situation prior to the attack. After the attack, I had plenty of people coming up to me going, I had no idea it was that bad, right? You know, and so that's kind of what, what happens is like, you know, this, I, I mean, I had people that had written crap about me online, social media and stuff, and were just dumping on me. And I had some people reach out and go, I had no idea. I'm so sorry. Right. Like apologizing to me, you know, and she would use people um, to abuse me uh, psychologically a little bit online and stuff. So, yeah, I, I guess that's what I'm, that's what I'm talking about. So talking about that stuff, it just, it just doesn't sound like enough, right? She's, she's accusing me of being, you know, a physical, you know, an abuser to her, her daughter, my son, but it's just normal. It's just normal custody issues. Right. So, you know, people go through that. Right. It's kind of what people just sort of minimized it. Right. So, yeah. yeah. I wonder, uh, so I wonder if, and I'm, I'm projecting or just thinking this through, but how much of that is because we don't look at men as victims very often how much of it is just general victim shaming? Oh, it's not that bad. You're being dramatic. Do we say that to women also? Like, how can we change this idea that victims aren't in the middle of it until it's too late, right? The domestic abuse service that you talk to, whoever they are, no fault to them necessarily, but to say, well, there's nothing we can do because there's no imminent threat. No, this is an imminent threat. I, I need help. How can we change that? Where does that come from? I wonder. I mean, do you have any thoughts on on that at all? Uh, you know, I mean, I, I have my own theories. I, for for me, I think taking a more honest look at not just abusive relationships, but the way I I think people are people, right? And when you're in a relationship, you have your certain needs, right? Some are more aggressive about getting their needs met and it can come in ways of control and sometimes goes into manipulation and things like that. There's, there's a healthy amount of that where people are simply communicating what they need. But I think more and more people, more people than we realize use manipulation um, and psychological tactics to kind of gain sort of a, an upper hand in a relationship to, to kind of have their needs met. I, I personally believe we need to look deeper at that. I think it's more prevalent in relationships than we really understand. I don't think men talk about it. We chalk it up to, Oh yeah, she was crazy. Or we talk it up to, you know, he was just, you know, this or whatever, but I, but I think it's a key component because I think, both men and women will use the tools that are most effective for their use to get that control of what they want. Right. And I, I think men use physical tools more than women. I think there are more women that, you know, use emotional and psychological tactics more than we understand. Right. So um, that, I mean, that, that's my thoughts on, you know, things in general. I think yeah. physical abuse is easy to identify, right? Mm -hmm. So, 
you know, it's, it's easy to kind of attack that, but there's, there's so much that happens before that, that I think really is where we could, if we could hone in on, I, I obviously don't have the answers. I'm not a, you know, not sure. not a psychiatrist, but you know, that's kind of where, when I look at my situation, there were a lot of red flags um, that, you know, looking back, I can identify and where I kind of let my own boundaries said, I think we could do a better job of teaching people how to, you know, listen to their own boundaries and, and what they want in a relationship. But, mm-hmm. um, but I, I do, I do think it lies kind of in um, examining even the non-abusive relationships in terms of how people go about making sure their needs are met and where it crosses the line between healthy versus unhealthy. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. You have any thoughts on that or? Well, I mean, I, I, I've, oh my gosh, Silas, I have so many thoughts. <laughs> it is, it is such a huge uh, thing in our world of how people abuse others, whether it's intimate partner abuse, domestic right. abuse, sexual abuse, uh, power and control in, you know, politics, world leaders, uh, jobs. I mean, there's, there's so much out there. And I, I believe that because it's for so long been, well, it's a private thing between a a husband and a wife. And like, we're talking right now about heteronormative relationships. There's so many other relationships out there that it just, they just get kind of pushed aside and cast the shadows. And and I, and I believe shining a light is one of our biggest tools to helping with this. Um, So, yeah, so there's just a lot there. Um, I do have a thought on, I'd like to talk about those red flags, but I also want to kind of bring up, I'd love, I'd love, that sounds so terrible. I think it would be good for our listeners to know a little bit more about, about the attack, if you're willing to share, because it's, I mean, it's, it's a big deal. When I read how you described it, I was like, oh my gosh, he survived this. Like, this is a real attack. Are you, are you okay? Kind of describing a little bit of that? Yeah, no, I I mean, I, you know, it's all, it's almost a bit therapeutic, but you know, at the same time, I, you know, I survived. Right. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's kind of a, an amazing story. And I, you know, my dedication, my book was to, you know, thank both my boys and my late father, because there were a couple of miracles in there that had that happened. Right. Um, I mean, I, you know, I can start there. Um, yeah. You know, I, you know, I can lay the, the you know, the law of the, the situation, the situation was, I was, we were one week away from a hearing where my ex-wife had been told by a judge, either you're going to lose custody, I'm going to fine you, or I'm going to put you in prison or all three. Right. So he had given me temporary custody. Um, she had one weekend um, of custody during that month before the next hearing. And so it was that weekend uh, that she had her custody and she was to give me back the boys the, f- the following morning on Monday or the following afternoon on Monday. It was Sunday night. It was a Super Bowl. I'm a Pats fan. Pats lost to the Giants that night. Um, and so people had been kind of serving me, you know, kind of making fun of the, the Pats fan where we had gone and um, had bought me some drinks. And so I was, um, you know, but even when she attacked me, you know, I was, I still had alcohol in my system, but at 4 a.m. 
I actually got a call from work because every once in a while I'll get a call overnight from someone overseas that needs some help. Um, I got a call and that, that's why I know the exact time. It was, you know, I think 250, you know, 239 or something like that. I got the call. Um, I fell back asleep and 10 minutes later, um, I hear the shuffle of feet and I don't, I don't wake up in time before I get smacked over the head with what I learned later was a, uh, you know, an old wooden police baton. Right. So I jumped up, I started fighting. I didn't know who it was. I assumed it was my ex-wife because of what was going on, but I, you know, I couldn't verify. She had long hair. I actually tried to grab hair or something because I couldn't see, but there was no hair to grab. Um, in that tussle, a there was a loud pop, a gun got, went off with a loud flash. And so I just stopped right there going, oh shit, whoever it is has a gun. And I actually sat down back in my bed. I turned on my light and there's my ex-wife standing at the um, foot of my bed, just sort of rocking back and forth. And, you know, she tells me, you're going to give up the custody case. You know, what's your password? And you know, she starts barking orders. And I'm just like, yeah, sure. You know, whatever you want at this point. Cause my point was like, give her whatever she wants, get her out of here. Um, but that doesn't go through. She eventually tells me to turn around on my bed. Um, I turn around. She flex ties my hands behind my back and then my ankles. Um, I did try to jump up and, um, and get out of it at one point, but the gun was right next to her um, on the bed. So, you know, she ties me up, hog ties me, and then she wraps my bed sheets around me. And I don't really know what's going on. And she, but I hear like sort of the, you know, when, when you unroll a cling wrap roll, I hear that. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on, but she starts wrapping cling wrap around my head. Um, you know, and there's discussion going on. I'm like, you're going to kill me. And she's like, I'm not going to kill you. I love you. It was like in a weird, creepy tone. It was just um, kind of weird. Um, but she wraps my head. I'm sitting upright on the bed, wraps my head in cling wrap. And I start struggling um, she starts yelling at me to stop struggling. I eventually fall face down on the floor, still struggling. And as I'm doing that, she's beating the back of my head with the wooden baton. But I start, you know, after it was probably a minute or so, I mean, I was running out of breath. Um, I can feel the flex ties behind my back sort of loosening a little. Um, and eventually I was able to rip it out, rip out one of my hands. And, you know, I think just adrenaline. Um, I was, I literally just kicked up my foot and kicked off the ties of my, on my ankles, jumped up, I'm wrapped up in my bed sheets and cling wrap everywhere. She's like surprised. We lock eyes for a split second. She goes to grab the gun and we start fighting for the gun. Um, the gun goes off. I feel a sort of a zing over the top of my ear. Um, but we continue fighting for the gun. I, I actually got the gun out of her hand. And I looked at it, I'm trying to see if I can, you know, get it to work, but it looked broken and I'm a little hazy on that because I, I learned at the trial that it was not broken. So I don't I, like, I'm confused because my memory is that it was broken. Um, but I, you know, I couldn't um, get the gun to work. So she goes outside the room into my garage. I am still working on the gun. I realize I can't figure it out. I go to shut the door, but she comes back with a broom. She shoves a broom in the door. We're, you know, I'm trying to get the door shut. I finally just take the gun. I turn it around. Um, so the 
the muzzle's facing away from me and I hit her over the top of the head a few times with the, with the gun. And the last time we looked each other in the eye, she just had this bead of blood just sort of dripping down in between her, in between her eyes onto her nose. And I was eventually able to get the broom off. I shut the door, locked the door. I turn around, I'm looking for my phone, can't find the phone. I go to open up one of the windows trying, like I was just thinking, screaming to you know a neighbor or something. Um, the one window would not open and this window was always sort of a pain in my ass, but um, it wouldn't open. So I went to go around to the other window and that's when I saw my phone on the, on the floor. It was <clears throat> kind of underneath some plastic and all this crap. And I still had plastic and bed sheets just sort of um, hanging off me. And so I picked up the phone I go to call 911, and as I do, the door um, handle starts jiggling. So she was trying to get back in, but when I, when the the 911 operator picked up, you know, I started talking to them. You know, I hear this bang. She had dropped. Can't remember. It was like a pot or something that she had brought with her. But um, you know, I went into my bathroom, talking to 911, and I, you know. That, that's kind of where, where it ends, but it took 13 minutes for um, the cops to really get there. Um, one point in the, on the phone, I'm crying. I'm just like, I don't know what the hell's going on. And I was scared, too scared to go out and meet the cops because I had no idea where she was. And um, they're flashing a, a, a flashlight into my bedroom window. And I'm like, is that you guys? I don't know. Like, I'm too scared to go out. But she had escaped um, out my back door and... Um, they finally found her the next day, three and a half, four hours away in the hospital because I, um, by the time she got home, she had blood everywhere. So yeah, I mean that's kind of the the quick story of of the attack, right? But it was all done in you know under forty minutes. I mean, I got that call. I can't remember. It's two forty nine a.m. or whatever. I called the cops at three thirty. It might have been three, you know, whatever. But it was like within forty minutes um, between I got the call from work. And the call to um, uh, to nine one one, all that happened. So things changed so fast. Yeah. How? So you said red flags. Yeah. Every relationship, as you said earlier, is, is different. But there's also maybe some commonalities. What red flags would you um, highlight to yourself if you could go back and say, "Hey, Silas, this is important." Um, so the others might take that as well. What red flags pop up for you? Well, you know, our first date, I asked her about her daughter and, you know, her, her response was I was raped. Right. So at 16 years old, she was raped. And so it's not, you know, that's a hard story to, you know, really question. Um, but it's, it's a story of, drama right whether whether it's real or not right there's there's drama there so you know i i'm, I'm a trusting person i you know I, I i trusted her i learned later before i right before i filed for divorce that you know she had been married to the guy and and all this stuff but um that's not necessarily a flag but it was the first sort of instance of drama right um we didn't go out again for two months but we talked on the phone every night. She always had excuses, right? So that was clearly something was going on, right? And what prompted her to start seeing me again, I was like, I'm moving on, right? You know, we're, we're done. Um, 
But quickly after that, things escalated quickly. It was within three months, four months, she's telling me she's pregnant. Okay. You know, again, it's not any one instance. It's right. sort of the progression of sort of there's drama. Okay. You're raped. Okay. We're not seeing each other. You're not telling me that you're seeing someone else. You know, she encourages me not to use protection because she's using protection. And I was still, I was wary of it. I was mostly careful, but I wasn't always careful because of the, you know, sort of that encouragement. Um, she gets pregnant and it was two weeks later where she's telling me to fucking grow up. And it was that pressure that I really, really should have. If I were to go through this today, there's no way someone could pressure me the way she did. Mm -hmm. um, and, at, you know, at the time, my boundary was I wasn't going to get married to someone until I'd married them or until I dated them for at least a year. I wasn't going to propose until I at least dated them for a year. That's not necessarily my standpoint today, but at the time, I allowed that boundary to go. So for me, making that decision to allow that to, to allow for that boundary is sort of a red flag, right? It's not necessarily something she did, but I was getting pushed on boundaries that she was not respecting. And that was, that's the red flag is my attempts to say, Hey, look, we can still have the baby, but what's important is you and I having a, a healthy relationship. You know, I'd rather, you know, a baby be born into a, a healthy relationship if we're not together than to be in a, in an ugly one. And she did, she didn't respect that. It was that lack of respect for, you know, my boundaries and where I thought that I really should have been stronger on. Um, and for various reasons, I'm not really going to get into, I mean, I, I was in a spot where, um, you know, I, I, I allowed those boundaries to be, to be crossed. Um, and then, you know, that, there were, there were some fights or fights over whether or not we were going to have, you know, alcohol at the wedding um, that I wasn't as concerned about alcohol at the wedding. It was just, there was sort of a, a lack of consideration for, for both sides. Right. Um, and it was, you know, this sort of, it, it's, it's some of it's hard to describe and I don't remember all of it. Um, and then the wedding day itself was, was absolute hell. I mean, she was, she spent the entire day saying she was going to leave me at the altar and all this. And, um, and she had actually didn't want alcohol because she had told me she was worried about me being drunk at the wedding. And when we walked down the aisle after saying our vows and getting married, um, she tells me I'm really, really tipsy. So she was really drunk the whole time. She was like, you know, yelling at me, I, you know, I walked away from the wedding going, do I stay with this? Right. Things calmed down. A few months later, things start picking back up, right? So when it, you know, within within a year, we had been through so much up and down. And I think honestly, that you know, that's kind of the, the easiest way to say the flags. It was just sort of there's always some up and down um to it that sort of had my feelers up, right? And so, and I just didn't pay enough attention to to the questions I had, you know, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I'm doing a poor job, but you know, obviously there's more specific, but you know, I mean, it's just, it's like that up and down where you're, where you're kind of questioning, you know, what, you know, I think that's, I think what's important in this Silas is that there isn't necessarily one or two red flags. There are many that could be interpreted either way. It's the intuition. It's the manic swings. It's the reel you in and then push you away trauma that cripples you as the other person in this relationship, whether, you know, male, female, any gender identity, like you're, you're being controlled and manipulated. And so right. those trusting that intuition, I think is what it is. It's because it's not easy. It's messy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I don't think you did a poor job. I think you, I, th I think, m yeah, my well, gut tells me yeah. you described it exactly how everybody else would, you know? Right. And, well, and you're, you're trying, you're trying to understand the person that you love. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, you know, at the time, I mean, I, I chalked so much up to the fact that she was pregnant. Right. And that, you know, her emotional swing and she was a little bit, she was eight years younger. And um, there was just, I, I mean, I, I just gave her a lot of excuses and a lot of leeway. Um, and then, you know, I get a call while I'm away at work, I'm on a business trip and, you know, she tells me she lost the baby and, I, I have no way to know whether or not she actually was pregnant or not. Um, so, mm -hmm. but that definitely put a different pressure on things. And um, mm. yeah, so, I mean, I, I really, I chalked a lot of it up to her being pregnant and then losing the baby and then the stress of the wedding. I mean, I gave her a lot of excuses and justification um, that, <clears throat> you know, I should have, been I, I if i if i could go back i would just be a little bit stronger in terms of hey look you know we can get married at any point in time you know i mean there's i just would have been stronger about it right sure. and i would you know would have been willing to walk away if she couldn't respect that mm -hmm. right so well, thank you for sharing that um you said earlier that even sharing the attack is almost therapeutic it has to be exhausting um kind of, i do yeah. believe i do believe that it brings value to listeners who might see themselves in that. So thank you very much for, for sharing all of yeah. that, Silas. Yeah. Um, as, as you're thinking about <clears throat> the book and, and what's next and the trilogy and everything else, I'd love to make sure that folks know where to look for all of that. Um, where's the best place to connect with you on everything? Well, you know, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram uh, at Bullethead Books. Um, website, www.bullettheadbooks.com. Uh, online, the only way to um, purchase, well, you can purchase it through my website um, or you can, but it, I think it goes to Amazon anyway, but um, it's being sold on Amazon. Um, Interrupted Dreams, Silas Cast. Um, so yeah, that's that's the best way to, yeah. to get it. And I tell a little bit about my story and um, and Twitter, I kind of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to put my story out there, but I'm, I'm still trying to figure out like where you know, where's the line of, of talking about what I'm, you know, what I've gone through and, and, you know, exposing, you know, sort of myself to that. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting balance to try to market a book, you know, from, from this perspective. Um, because, you know, my, my ultimate goal is, is to bring attention to, you know, I think men go through uh, more than we know of because it's, it's definitely more difficult for men to talk about. And I don't know if you've seen that study, out of England, um, they did a video where they did a, a situation where 
a man was sort of was abusing a woman publicly in a public square, not necessarily very violent, but enough, you know, he had his, his hands on her and men and women both come, come to her, her aid and start, you know, chastising him and, and sort of get, you know, come to her rescue. Right. They did the same thing where it's a woman versus a man and, and people are sitting back just laughing. Right. And I think, you know, that's sort of, that's where we miss it. Right. Because we don't think we, we believe men are physically capable, capable of handling themselves in those situations, but you know, we're, we don't exactly have the ability to, to hit someone, <laughs> hit someone back. Right. I mean, it, it's, yeah. it creates a, a, a hard situation when we're on that cusp. It's not truly violent, but you know, it's close enough, right. If they're doing it yeah. publicly and you're laughing, what's going to go on, what's happening behind closed doors. Yeah. And, you know, that's the one thing people can't really understand enough is that what you see publicly, I mean, we don't, we don't know what happens behind closed doors in, in a lot of relationships. So yeah. Yeah. And if you're only seeing the physical, as you said earlier, the tactics and strategies that an abuser right. uses, the gender roles flips, it may not be physical, but that emotional and that, that mental abuse is still very, very real. So right. yeah, very difficult. Yep. Is there anything yeah. that, um, that we didn't talk about, Silas, you want to make sure listeners hear from you um, as they wrap up their episode with us? Um, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. I mean, um, I, you know, I, I do love hearing stories of, of other men um, that go through this stuff because, like I said, I think my story, because of the physical attack, if I didn't have the physical attack, I don't think my story makes much of a, much of an impact. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think people go through the things I went through prior to the attack a lot. And I would really like to see more discussion um, on those kinds of relationships that don't end in physical abuse necessarily. Right. Because there is more abuse there than I think we really recognize. So um, and, and, and like I, I think we were talking about before, I, I, I never want to disrespect um, the physical abuse that, you know, women survivors go through. Um, but it's, you know, I, I, I think there's there's room here to explore the, you know, that emotional manipulative abuse that men go through that doesn't always lead to um, physical abuse. And if it does from a uh, from a woman to a man, there's typically a, I, I, I don't have the statistics, but I think there's more likely to be a, a weapon involved, right? Because they, they need that weapon to, to have that, that leverage, I guess, if that makes yeah. sense. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing your perspective. We definitely need yeah. to shine a light on this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Silas Cass, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Listeners, go to bullethead.books.com. Look for Bullethead Books on social media. Silas, thank you so much for being willing to. Thank you for having um, me, Dan. I really open appreciate up. it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to I'm Not In an Abusive Relationship. If these stories resonate with you and you need help, please visit our website, dasasmi.org. That's dasasmi.org. Or call our hotline at 800-828-2023. We are here to walk alongside you. Now, if you know someone who might benefit from our show, please share it. Social media, email, simply 
telling someone about it all help us spread the word and help us to combat domestic and sexual violence. We also welcome financial and volunteer support. That information is on our website. Thank you to the staff, volunteers, and board of directors at Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services. This podcast is produced with the help of a committee of dedicated advocates. Thank you to WBET Radio in Sturgis, Michigan for the use of their studio. This has been a podcast about surviving domestic and sexual violence and a production of Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services of Michigan. The views expressed by guests on this podcast are not necessarily the views of Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services.